Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church/online. We would love to hear from you. This week, Jeff provided a message from the book of Judges on the story of a man named Gideon. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week 12 of Long Story Short. Now, if this is your first Sunday, let me explain. This year, we are traveling through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And along the way, we are inviting you to read along with us with our daily reading plan. So at the end of the year, if you're following along and reading along, you will have read the entire Bible from front cover to back cover, maybe minus like the maps. Um, But again, is the goal to read the entire Bible? No, the goal is to read the some of the Bible every day and allow God's Word to shape us on a daily basis. So if this is your first Sunday, don't worry about starting at the beginning. Just pick up wherever you are and start from there. Now, if you get behind, it's okay. Just start again wherever you are and keep going. Again, the goal is not just to read the whole Bible. The goal is to be in God's Word on a daily basis. But for those of us who are following along on the reading plan, we are now in the book of Judges. Now, this book is always a fun one to read, especially after you've just finished all like the land divisions from the book of Joshua. Like, finally, we get back to characters and action. Now, for the book of Judges, it's actually kind of a sad story of how God's people continue to rebel, continue to cry out to God, and God continues to save them, and then they continue to forget God's salvation and fall back into their cycle of sin. But in their sin and oppression, God continues to raise up leaders or judges who will help deliver them. And yesterday and today, you're going to read the, the story of Gideon which is a story we're going to look at today. But before we do that, I want to show you some pictures. Now, I've always heard kids grow up so quick, and that's becoming true in our house. This past week, we all kind of laid on the floor together, and we started looking through the pictures on our phones of when the kids were born, and then when they were infants and toddlers, and then you look at them now, and you think, like, you've grown up so much. Like, for instance, look at these pictures. Finn at six months old. Finn at a year old, at two years old, at three years old, and then Finn pretty pretty recently. And then you get to Evie, right? Evie, six months old, a year old, two years old, and then more recently, So these are our kids, and they've changed so much, like just in their physical appearance, like they've grown and changed, but also in their personalities, their abilities. You know, you want to celebrate the weird things like being potty trained. You go out and you get a cake that says, no more diapers. You know, you rejoice when they know their colors and their numbers and their letters. And Finn has started writing out words and making sentences, and you just feel this level of pride looking at where they used to be and then knowing where they are now. So there's this growth 
both in their independence, but also in their need for a relationship. They're growing up in ways that they need us less in some sense. Like we no longer have to spoon food into their mouths every day but they also need us more. They're asking more complex questions about life and how things work. And so we have to like Google, you know, how do HVAC units work and give them answers. So they need us less and they also need us more. Our relationship grows despite their needs changing. Now, as a baby, the world revolved around them. If they had a need, they would cry, get attention, and then someone would come to their rescue and fill that need. As a baby, they got to set the terms of their relationship. But that can't last forever. Like part of good parenting is teaching an awareness that the world doesn't revolve around you. Like if they're 20 years old and they're still crying out for someone to feed them, that's not a good thing. If Finn is doing that in 20 years, the loving thing would be to stand him up, give him a hug, say, I love you, buddy. Go get a job. You know, like that's not the mean thing to do. That's the loving thing to do. It's helping them transition into adulthood by realizing The world doesn't revolve around you. You don't get what you want all the time. There's give and take. It's called marriage. It's called having roommates. It's called being a friend. The world doesn't revolve around you, and it doesn't revolve around the other person. It's about give and take. That's what it means to have healthy adult relationships, and we understand that. But we also know how that transition emerging out of that baby mindset It's painful and it's frustrating. And maybe what's most frustrating is dealing with adults who have never learned this lesson, right? They still think they can stomp their feet and pound their fist and scream to get what they want. And we look at them and we're like, dude, grow up, you know? Like we we understand that about adult relationships, right? But there's one relationship where I think many of us are still perpetually stuck, or maybe we constantly revert back to our baby mindset, and that's in our relationship with God. Now, I don't know if we always recognize it as this, but that's precisely what happens when I ask, what is God's role in my life? Like, what's his purpose? What what reason do I have him? And if the answer is simply, I've invited God into my life, or I follow God so that he will make my life go better so that he can help me with my stuff, you know, so that he can give me success in my career. He can help me raise my kids so I can have a good family. I can have good friends. I can have health and wealth or whatever. Like if if that's the basic terms of our relationship with God, it's a baby mindset. It's a baby mindset because we expect that when we stomp our feet and we pray real loud and we ask God to make our lives go a certain way, we just expect He will do that. And when it happens, we say, oh, God, you're so good. Thank you, God, for that parking spot or whatever it may be. You know, usually it's very trivial, but that's our baby mindset. Now, some of us might be thinking, come on, I don't really think that way about God. But just flip the coin over and think about what your mindset is when things don't go the way you want them to. When your prayers appear to go unanswered, when things fall apart. And if among the basic responses, one of them is to get mad at God or feel betrayed or angry at God that he's not good or that he's not faithful, like what's that showing? It's exposing this assumption that I have that God's role in my life is to just make my life go better. And if my life does not go better, then it must be God's fault. When our lives fall apart, It exposes our basic assumptions about God, and it shows that many of us throughout different seasons of our life, we have a baby mindset in our relationship and faith with God. And sometimes 
God totally accommodates that. Like He answers our prayers. He solves our problems. Things get better, but sometimes He doesn't. Like Things get worse. He doesn't answer our prayers the way we want Him to. And it just raises the big question then, like, is God still good? Is He still gracious? Is it possible that God, when He doesn't answer our prayers and things actually get worse in our lives, is it possible that God is still as gracious as when He solves all of our problems? Is it possible that He's actually trying to grow us up into an adult relationship? And the point of the relationship is to be with us, not to solve our problems. Like God is not a genie in the bottle. Then that's a hard lesson to learn. And it's, it's the lesson that our main character today is going to learn in today's story. So if you have a Bible, Turn to Judges chapter 6. So the book of Judges, it comes in the storyline after the book of Joshua. The people have come out of Egypt through the wilderness, and now they're going into the promised land. And Joshua has brought them into the land. They're supposed to settle there. And then the book of Judges, is it's between Joshua and the kings of Israel. So they're in the land. And in Joshua, we got to read all the exciting boundary markers that divided the land between the 12 tribes. So each tribe has a place to live, but no one of these tribes rules all of the others. There's no king. They're all just coexisting, giving and taking. And basically, the storyline of the book of Judges is very simple. They just keep making bad decisions. And this is not anything new if you've been following along in the journey so far. And so pretty much the book of Judges is seven cycles of when people People turn away from Yahweh. They worship other gods. Yahweh lets them face the consequences of those decisions, which which essentially like other nations invade and begin picking off all the different tribes. And it just gets repeated over and over. And we're going to tune into one of those cycles right here. Chapter six, verse one. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land and ravaged it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites, they cried out to Yahweh for help. So are things good or bad? That's right, bad. Like these are not happy days. So what is God going to do? When the Israelites cried out to Yahweh because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am Yahweh, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So in the storyline of Israel, this is the first prophet who comes to the people. Now, prophets in the Bible, they're not necessarily like fortune tellers. They're more like covenant watchdogs. They're watchdogs 
on behalf of the covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel. They speak on behalf of God to the people to challenge them on their sin, on their apostasy, on their corruption, and to remind them of the relationship that they are in with God. And that's what this prophet does. So this prophet, he comes onto the scene and he says, listen, guys, remember all that Yahweh your God has done for you. But what has been your response? You're not listening to Yahweh. And that's kind of like the end of it. We have to sit with that. There's no like quick resolution to the prophet's word. The story just kind of moves on to the next scene. The angel of Yahweh came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of Yahweh appeared to Gideon, he said, Yahweh is with you, mighty warrior. Now, this is a great example of the storytelling style in the Old Testament. So you have this great drama of the nations, Midian and Israel, and the Israelites are being oppressed and they're crying out to Yahweh. So what happens next? Well, you know, there's this angel who goes and sits under a tree next to this guy who's like farming, you know, and you're like, wait, what is going on? What about this other story? What is this have to do with anything. So that's what the author is answering. He's saying somehow this random little scene under a tree is related to the drama of the nations. How? Well, so this angel appears to this guy named Gideon, and he's threshing wheat in a wine press, which we might kind of read over, but to the ancient readers, they would have been shocked or at least confused. So threshing wheat is when you're trying to separate the seeds of the wheat from like everything else. So normally you would do this in like a big open space uh, where where the wind could come through. So you're beating or threshing the wheat and the seeds, they fall to the ground and then the kernels get blown away in the wind because they're really light. But he can't do this out in the open. Why? Because of the Midianites. Like the Midianites will see him and they'll say, hey, there's an Israelite. He's working. He's making food. Let's go beat him up and take all his food. And so Gideon has to hide in a wine press, which is kind of this dug out hole in the ground where they would press grapes to make wine, hence the name wine press. So is this a place you want to thresh wheat? No. Is this going to be an, a difficult activity for Gideon? Yes. But does he have any other choice? No. Like he's living in perpetual fear of the Midianites. And I love to imagine what this scene was like. You have Gideon in the wine press. I guess there's like a tree nearby. And so the angel of Yahweh like walks up and sits by the tree. And how long does he sit there like watching Gideon work? I imagine you just see like tufts of wheat kind of flying into the air. Maybe occasionally you see the top of Gideon's head. And then at some point this angel yells out, Yahweh is with you mighty warrior. And the sound of threshing stops and you just see like the top of Gideon's head slowly appear from the hole and he like looks around this way and that and he finally turns and he sees the messenger and he realizes, oh, okay, you're not a Midianite. So he stands up and he says, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if Yahweh is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not Yahweh bring us up out of Egypt? But now Yahweh has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. What's interesting here is that Gideon's response to the hardship and suffering they're experiencing exposes his basic assumptions about God. The angel says, Yahweh is with you, which is a, a repeated phrase over and over. And how does Gideon respond to that? 
No, he's not. He's not with us at all. Look, look, look around. Look at what's going on. If Yahweh was with us, my life wouldn't be falling apart. If Yahweh was with us, if he actually cared about us, these Midianites wouldn't be here. Like the lives of our people would be safe and secure and we would all be happy if Yahweh was with us. And so what the story is raising here is a question. Is that really the case? Is it possible that the opposite could be true? That yes, God is with his people when things are going well and he'll protect them. He'll make them secure. He'll make things work out for them and so on. But it is, is it also possible that God is as much with you when your life is falling apart? And that can actually also be God's grace to you, just in a different form, in a different form that maybe we don't like. Now, you see this here. Gideon's God right now is a genie in a bottle. If God was with us, then he should solve all of our problems. Like, I pray to him, he solves my problems. And if he doesn't, he's not with us. Do you see what's going on in Gideon's life? And so Gideon, he's going on a journey. He's going to be taken on a journey where he has to grow up. And it's God's grace that forces him to grow up and have an adult relationship with God. So we keep reading. Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And Yahweh answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And Yahweh said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread. Place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of Yahweh touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of Yahweh disappeared. What a strange story, right? (laughs) But for those of us who have read the story up to this point, maybe sparks are going off in your head. Like the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to a chosen leader and says he can't do it. Like, isn't that what Moses did? And now Gideon says, I can't do it. God says, I will be with you. Gideon has an encounter with a divine visitor and he bakes an ephah of flour and makes bread. That's like 36 pounds. Talk about an abundance. But then you remember in Genesis 18, when Yahweh appears to Abraham and Abraham instructs Sarah to make bread using three seahs of flour, which is equal to one ephah. And Gideon asks for a sign. And you think about the rainbow God gave to Noah. And you think about all these signs God gave in Egypt. So you have all these connections rolling around in the back of your mind. But then this story adds some bizarre elements like soggy bread and meat on a rock gets consumed by fire. And then the guy you're talking to disappears. Like that's strange. Things like this don't happen to you every day. But Gideon asks for a sign. He asks for some sort of sign outside like the normal boundaries of time and space, something that he can be sure of that happened. Like, give me a sign that this is really you, that your promise to me that I'm going to be able to do this is going to come true. And Gideon says, give me a sign. And God says, all right, done, sign. So let me ask you, 
Like if you have this experience, would you at least be a little bit more full of courage and faith and trust that God is really talking to you? What do you think? Like if you had this experience, bizarre, yes. But if you had it, I think most of us would be like, man, I would like to think I would be at least a little bit more full of courage and full of hope and faith and trust. And he is in the next story, at least a little bit. God tells Gideon, hey, there are these altars to other gods in your city. So go get your dad's bull and tear them down and build an altar to me, and then sacrifice the bull on it to me. So Gideon does this, but he does it at night because he's afraid. Now people wake up, they see what's happened, they're all mad, they start figuring out who did it, and they find out it was Gideon. So they go to Gideon's dad, and Gideon's dad pretty much says, listen, if Baal has a problem with my son, then Baal can come deal with him. So Gideon takes a step of faith and does what God asks of him, but it doesn't seem like he's full of trust when he does it. And then this lack of trust continues. Look at verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of Yahweh came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. So how's Gideon doing so far? Like pretty good. You know, he's full of the spirit, full of the power of God. He has this miraculous sign as his bedrock. Yes, God's promise. We're going to do this. He's formed his army. He's full of courage and trust. And then you keep reading. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. And we're like, if, if, like, don't you remember the sign? Don't you see the army you have gathered and you're still not sure? But while we laugh at Gideon, at the same time, we have to sympathize with Gideon because who else has looked back on all that God has done for them in their life and yet we're still full of doubt. And so we understand that Gideon's full of doubt no matter what God has done for him. And so Gideon continues to bargain with God. So Gideon says, listen, if you will save Israel by my hand like you promised, then how about this? Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And this is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. So Gideon needs another magic trick from God. He's like, hey, remember when you burned up that food and you did that disappearing act? Like, that was really cool. Would you do something like that again? Like, I'm not sure. I have doubt. I need a pick-me-up. Could you just prove, prove it to me? Like, what is God's response? God seems to say, okay, I'll give you another sign. Done. Like, God shows his grace in this moment. But then Gideon starts to think, maybe, uh, well, maybe a sheep could have come down here last night and needed a place to go tinkle. So maybe that's why the fleece is wet and the ground is dry. So how about this, God? Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Now, this is a well-known story from the Bible, and sometimes it gets pulled out as this example of how to discern God's will. Like, how can I know what God wants me to do? And so you do something like this. You make this like little magic sign, or maybe you flip a coin. But is this story trying to offer us an example of what we should do? 
I don't think so. I think it's criticizing Gideon's behavior. Like he's already got a clear promise from God. He knows what God is asking him to do, and yet he's full of doubt and fear and confusion. And what is God's response to his doubt and fear and confusion? Well, God is willing to meet him where he is. So maybe one thing we can learn from the story is that sometimes in our journey, God will relate to us in our baby mindset. He'll totally stoop down to our level. He'll answer our prayers. He'll keep people safe. He'll heal people. Like Things will work out for us. And in those moments, that's God's grace. He does exactly what we wish he would do. And that's awesome. But the fact that it's an act of grace means that God is not obligated to do that because he never actually promised that he would do it. Like He promised to be with us. And so could it be that if the tables get turned here, that God is still with Gideon and that he's still as gracious as he ever has been? So let's keep reading. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, his name gets changed in one of the stories, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. And Yahweh said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me, saying, My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Okay, so you're a military general. Is this the kind of thing you dream of? If you do have this dream, it's called a nightmare. Like Gideon has put all this energy into assembling this huge army. You know, I've got a plan. I'm going to go and conquer. This is how this is all going to work out. And God says, no, we're going to do things totally different. 22,000, two-thirds of your army leaves. And the story begs the question, is God good all the time? Well, let's keep reading. But Yahweh said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There Yahweh told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Yahweh said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. I mean, picture Gideon right now. I imagine tears in his eyes as his plan is falling apart. Like he's trying to understand this. 32,000 to 300 in the course of a day. This thing is going to be over before it starts. Like what's happening here? Like Gideon was testing God, you know, meet me where I am. I have this baby mentality. Be my genie in a bottle. Attend to me, revolve around me. And God and his grace says, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Gideon tests God. But now it's like God turns the tables and now God is testing Gideon. He's forcing Gideon to grow up from that baby mindset. He's like, listen, this is an adult relationship, by the way, and it's actually not healthy for you that we keep this kind of relationship going. You need to grow up. And so is it possible that Gideon's plan, and from his perspective, his life falling apart could be the most gracious thing God has ever done for Gideon? Because it forces Gideon to realize that he's actually not in control of his life and circumstances. It breaks and it shatters the illusion that the world revolves around Gideon. 
And if the battle is going to be won, it's only going to be by God at work behind and in and through the circumstances, not because Gideon is such an awesome guy or a great leader. Now, we don't have time to finish reading the entire story, but hopefully you'll read it yesterday and on the reading plan. But in these 300, God, through some crazy circumstances, allows Gideon to beat the Midianites. Gideon never even draws a sword. They win with trumpets and these little clay pots and fire torches. And this is the point. I want to draw this together and just to put the ball in our course as we think about it, um, as we think about this story. God is forcing Gideon to grow up. And that is an act of God's grace in his life to realize this is an an adult relationship that we have with God. He's not being a jerk when he's forcing us to grow up. If we think God's biggest priority ought to be solving all my problems and answering all my prayers just the way I want them answered, that's a baby mindset. What if that's not God's biggest priority? One of his biggest priorities is to shape us into mature followers of Christ. Now people have sunk people who have sunk deep roots of faith and hope and patience and virtue and character. So what if that's God's biggest priority? And so to accomplish that, his promise is to be with us, not to be a genie in a bottle, but to be with us through his different forms of grace in our lives. Now this is going to land differently with different people, like depending on the season of life that we're in, Some of us are with Gideon down by the river. Like we just watched our lives fall apart and we're we're in that right now. Some of us are in chapter six and God seems to be meeting us on our own terms. But wherever you are, it's about recognizing that this is God's grace, that God's not obligated to do anything for me. It's all grace. So what is he trying to teach me? What is he trying to shape in me? And so that's what I want us to meditate on, reflect on as we take the bread and we take the cup, that in the bread and in the cup, we are retelling the story of God with us in Christ and how he came among us, not to solve our problems, but to reconcile us to himself and to be in a relationship, to be with us. And some of us need to let that truth speak to us right now as we go to the table. That's it for this week. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode soon.